We continue the move through the book of Revelation and we come to chapter 20. And we have slowed down here because there's a lot of controversial stuff in this chapter. So this is our third study in chapter uh, 20. We've already covered chapter seven, really, in our first study, uh, or verse seven in our, in our first study. So we're covering three verses tonight. Again, just continuing to deal with these things that people have a lot of questions about. We are in the middle of the millennium period and we now come to the end of the millennium. And there is an event here that causes us to have a lot of questions. We want to make sure that we cover them all. Now, the title of our message today is Satan's Final Defeat. Here's where we see the end of Satan. We saw him locked in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Now we're at the end of the millennium and he is thrown into the lake of fire. This is his final defeat. And it is anticlimactic, by the way. Uh, you don't find this big struggle going on in the end. Uh, it is just Satan being taken and thrown into the lake of fire. And we'll, we'll get to that. Now, this battle between Satan and his evil, he was, a, he was an angel. He was a powerful angel. And when he fell, he fell into evil. And because he's a powerful angel, there was a lot of evil that he did and continues to do in our day. Uh, he is limited. That's important for us to understand. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, the evil one cannot touch you. It literally says if you're in Christ, you don't sin and the evil one can't touch you. But usually then we go, well, I sin. So what's that mean? Is the evil one able to touch me? <clears throat> but earlier in that same book, it said, if you say you have no sin, then you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So then at the end, when it says that you don't sin, it means that sin is being worked out of your life. You cannot go on without any changes from the moment you commit your life to Christ and then go on as if there's no changes continuing on in sin. There's going to be a transformation. There's going to be taking care of sin. But the evil one can't touch you. Jesus said, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. And so Satan, and remember when he went to, oh, when he was before God and God brought up Job and then he wanted to go ahead and talk about Job. Uh, you remember that God gave him always limitations. There were always things that he could and could not do. So I got to turn this down a little bit. <clears throat> there were things that he could and couldn't do. So he's always had limitations. But this battle began in the garden and after the garden and man falling into sin, when God was cursing Satan in Genesis 3.15, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, my mom told me when I was a kid, that's why women are afraid of snakes. I don't know that that's the proper application of this text, all right? But that's what my mom understood, that, you know, well, women are afraid of snakes because God put enmity between the woman and the serpent. Um, he's talking about the battle that would go on over all of human history. And between your seed and her seed. So who are the seed of the serpent? Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. They were the seed. It was a spiritual seed. It wasn't a literal seed. It doesn't have literal seed as in descendants. But he's got descendants all over that have turned away from God and are following him. Because men love the darkness, Jesus said. They hate the light and they love the darkness. And men have a propensity to move towards the evil. And that is inside of all of us. I'm not saying it's the same level inside of all of us, but it is inside of all of us that there is a love of darkness inside of us. And um, it says, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the King James Version. It's the version I use. It's not necessarily the best version for communicating things all the time. And uh, other versions will say he will crush your head and you shall crush his heel. 
The word break could be used. When you look up the word to see what the word is, the word break could be used. He will break your head and you will break his heel. This obviously took place at the cross where he made Satan an open spectacle because he defeated him at the cross. From there, it was done. Uh, the battle was won already. It just had to play out from Jesus dying on the cross, going up into heaven, letting everything play out. Kind of like Satan had to be re-released at the end of the millennium to let everything play out. God had his purpose for Satan. And that's kind of a crazy thought. Uh, in a Q&A not long ago, I had said God has his purpose for suffering and God has his purposes for evil. And someone responded, that just shakes me that God has a purpose for evil. God has a purpose for evil and Satan is the one who is the ultimate evil that is in the world. And because we do love darkness and we are drawn to it, when we have to make a choice between serving God or living away from God and walking away from him, we are going to walk into evil when we make a decision not to follow him. Evil is what we will end up with. And it is not controllable evil. It's not like you're saying, well, I don't want to follow God. And so, you know, I'm going to go ahead and live my own way. And I'm going to, I'm going to control what's happening in my life. If you're walking away from goodness, if you're walking away from darkness, then you're walking towards evil. That's the decision that you're making. And it gets out of control. You can't control it. There are very few things in our lives that we can completely control anyway. So Satan was defeated by Jesus at the cross. Now, before we look at our text, I want us to consider the setting of where we're at. We are in the millennium. That is in the book of Revelation. So the millennium period has started. Satan is bound for a thousand years, which is the way that this is introduced. And then it talks about Jesus ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Um, there are people, when Jesus returns, his glorious return, we have Jesus coming to the earth in his incarnation. And then we have him coming in his glorious return. When he gloriously returns to this earth, he will set up a kingdom for a thousand years. And the purpose for this kingdom is to keep the promises that he made about ruling and reigning over the world. There are promises that were made to Israel. There are promises that were made to Gentiles that God was going to rule and reign in righteousness and peace. And those are being fulfilled in this millennial period. God's using it to fulfill his promises. He said that he was going to bring Israel back into the land again, that he was going to establish the nation and he's keeping his promises to the nation of Israel. That's the reason for this millennium period. Now, you remember that in the, the Old Testament, it talked about his suffering when he came and it talks about him ruling and reigning. And that this confused those who knew the Bible when Jesus first came because he comes as the suffering Messiah, but they didn't think anything about, they were only looking for the reigning Messiah. But the Old Testament talks about both. And we know that Jesus fulfills both. One in his incarnation, which is him, God becoming man, when, when Jesus was born and became a human, his incarnation. And then in his glorious return, he will set up his kingdoms. He will fulfill that. Now, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about Jesus reigning. I'm just going to give you one example. This is Isaiah 2, 4. He shall judge between the nations. This isn't just ruling over Israel, but he shall judge the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is a very unique time. 
It's a time where there's no war. It's a time where he's ruling and he's reigning. And it's a time when he's fulfilling his promises that he made. So it was necessary to have the millennium period. Now, in our study last week, we talked about the different views on the millennium. So if you want to study that, you can. The week before that, we talked about why God would release Satan again. And that's very detailed. So you can go to calvarytucson.com and you can, can go to our Revelation section, go to our teachings, go to Revelation, look at those two studies if you want to. You can also go to YouTube and just uh, go to our Revelation uh, playlist and you'll see them on there and they'll be there and you'll be able to, to keep up with them. But let me just go over quickly what the millennial period is like, okay? This, these are the characteristics of the millennial period. It is a time of peace, which we just read. They will make war no more. It's a time of peace. It's a time of safety. It says in Micah 4.4 that people are going to set under trees, they're going to set by their vineyards, and they're going to be in, 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 in safety. So no one's attacking them. They're not afraid anymore. So it's a time of peace. It's a time of safety. It's a time of worshiping Christ in Jerusalem. He rules and reigns from Jerusalem. It's a time when people live longer. When a child dies, it says they will die at 100 years old. It is a time of healing, which makes sense. Jesus is ruling and reigning. There are glorified saints who are ruling and reigning with him. There are people living in the world on their own. And the mortality rate will be radically lower than it is today. Much higher mortality right now. People will die in the millennium, but it will be a much lower mortality rate. People will be healed. It will be a time of justice because he is ruling with justice. It'll be a time of Christ reigning. <clears throat> It'll be a time of God doing his will on earth. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying that God would establish his kingdom. By the way, the kingdom isn't over in a thousand years. It's not like Jesus reigns for a thousand years and then the kingdom's done. The, there's a thousand year reign from Jerusalem to fulfill those promises, but then the kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and it will go on forever and ever, okay? And when, when you go back to look at passages on the kingdom during the millennium period, you find that it will often end with his reign will never end. It reminds me of Daniel chapter seven, when the son of man comes on the clouds to the ancient of days, days on his throne. And when he gets there, it's said that the son of man is given a kingdom of power, dominion and glory, which, of, which will not have an end. It goes on forever and ever. So he will continue to rule. Finally, it is a time of peace with the animals, which will be great for us, right? We get to roll around a little bit with a lion or a bear without thinking about being attacked. I got into a loop on my YouTube. I watched a couple bear attack videos. And so then they kept sending me bear attack videos. And it was like, so Joanne, so, so and so's um, horrible death by a grizzly bear. I don't know why I click on it to watch it, but somehow it sucks me in. But there'll be a time when I don't want to, I don't want to be around bears right now. There'll be a time when you'll be able to hang out with bears and they won't eat you. The bears will lie down with the calves, it says. All right, so that's the setting. We're in the millennium period. We're actually at the end of it. It's the very end of it. I don't think we're near the end of it. I think that when verse seven opens up, it's the end of it. Listen to what it says. This is Revelation 27. Now, when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So the thousand years of peace were a thousand years. It wasn't like he had to have a thousand years and then Satan was going to come and deceive the nations within that thousand years. Had a thousand years of peace. When it expired, Satan is released from his prison. Now, there's a few things that he's doing here. He's giving man a choice again. 
The, the people have been alive during the millennium period, whether Jew or Gentile, have been living in a much better environment than this. They still have a fallen nature, so it's by no means perfect, but they are living in a much better environment than we are. They have Jesus ruling and reigning. They have the best person ruling the nation that could ever rule it, making the best decisions for us. And that's why it's a time of, of ultimate peace. It's why it's a time of all of these things that we talked about. And people that are alive <clears throat> have to be given a chance to sense what evil is, to sense that in their nature, and then to make a decision whether or not they're going to follow him. So Satan is released and he will deceive the nations. Now, in John 3, 19, talking about man's basic heart, okay? It says, this is Jesus talking. This is just a few verses after John 3, 16, where he says he loves the world. God gave his only begotten son. And then it says he didn't come into the world to condemn it, but the world through him might be saved. And then he says this, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When, when there is a rejection of the love of God for the forgiveness of sins, it's a loving of darkness. Now, again, we, we might not like to hear that about mankind, but the Bible not only reveals to us what God is like, it reveals to us what we are like. And we know that when we are saved, God, we are his workmanship and God ordains works for us to walk in. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, so we walk in those works that God has given us. Now, after he's released, it says in verse eight, and will go out and deceive the nations. So he's very good at this. He told Jesus, I, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms in their glory when he tempted him. And he said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you because they have been delivered over to me. So as I said, he's a very powerful being and his evil is very powerful and he is able to deceive the nations. We assume that the satanic forces are with him. The Bible says we wrestle against principalities, powers, and spiritual hosts in heavenly places. We don't know that for sure because the text doesn't say it. But we assume that he's with them in order to deceive the nations. It says, which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. <clears throat> now, I love that Gog and Magog is thrown in here because that just sets everything that we know on its head. If you've ever studied Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the battle of Gog and Magog, then to see that at the end of the millennium is another battle and there's similarities. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have a coalition of nations, which includes nations to the north Maybe Turkey is the highest it goes. Maybe further north up into what would be, if you're looking at a map, what would be Ukraine and Russia. Maybe further north over into Europe. If you're looking at a map, you would go up and then you would go over into Europe. So maybe further north this way, you have Gog and Magog that are there. And also um, Libya and Ethiopia, which are south of them, and Iran, which is just a little bit north of them, just a little bit north of Israel. You got Iraq, you've got Jordan, and you got Iraq, and you got Iran. It's kind of right there in the area. So this is a coalition of a very isolated place on earth that comes against the nation of Israel and fights against them. They also see a certain amount of success. 
And then God knocks the bows out of their hands and God kills them on the hills and the mountains of Israel and their bodies are left to the birds to feast upon. So kind of sounds a lot like Armageddon, but there's enough differences that we know that this is not the battle of Armageddon. Now here in Revelation chapter 20, we have the Satan let out, he deceives, the, he goes out and deceives the nations on the four corners of the earth, which is not a reference to the earth being flat, by the way. All right. The four corners is a reference, meaning the entire earth. And so this isn't an isolated coalition. This is a coalition that goes all around the world. And Gog and Magog is mentioned there as well. Now, as I said, these are two similar events, but they are also two different events. So why do they use Gog and Magog? Let me read you a couple passages from the Gog and Magog passages out of Ezekiel 38. If you don't know what's going on in that section of scripture, there's a restoration going on. God starts off early in 35, I think, 35 or 36, Ezekiel 35 or 36, restoring the mountains of Israel. He prophesies to the mountains of Israel that they would be fruitful, that they would be restored because they had been made desolate. God had, pro had prophesied that the nation of Israel would be desolate. And then God was going to restore the fruitfulness to the, the mountains of Israel. And God says to the mountains of Israel, get ready and be fruitful for my people are about to come. And then he restores the people to Israel. That's 35, 36, 37. And you've got the Valley of Dry Bones, which is the nation of Israel that is dead and dry and, and the bones represent the rattling and coming back together again. And Israel comes back into the land as God has promised. Now that's what's happening in this passage. And then eventually Gog and Magog are going to attack. God is going to save Israel out of that in the tribulation period, which is battle may happen in the tribulation period. Then Israel is going to end up receiving Jesus as their savior, as, 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 as their Messiah. So the Jews have accepting Jesus as their Messiah in the future. Okay, Romans 11, 25 and 26. Um, he, he tells us a mystery that, that, uh, that the Jews have been blinded, that some Jews have been blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and then they will all be saved. So God's gonna do a grand work. Zechariah 12, 10. They will mourn and weep in Jerusalem and God will pour out a spirit of grace and mercy on Jerusalem for those who pierced him. So we have a restoration of the nation of Israel. So I wanna to read to you, first of all, show you that the, um, the, just introduce you here out of Ezekiel to Gog and Magog. And so I'm gonna to go to, where am I at? Um, I wanna to go to, I wanna go here. I wanna to go to Ezekiel 38, two through six. All right, so here's what it says, son of man, which is when you're reading Ezekiel, this is a reference that Ezekiel was referred to a lot. It simply means human. Remember, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man because he had become a human and re referenced his, himself to the Daniel passage in Daniel chapter seven. So son of man, set your face against Gog. So Gog is a person or it's a title. It's a name or it's a title, most likely a title. In First Chronicles, in the lineage of Reuben, there is a Gog that is mentioned there, but he doesn't live in the right time. He's not in the right place and nothing is ever said about him. It's just a, it's, it's just a random Gog in, in uh, Chronicles. Um, and so it says here, 
set your face against Gog in the land of Magog. So you have Gog as a leader and you have the land of Magog. So the land that Gog comes from is Magog. And he is also the prince of Rosh, of Mashish, of Tubal. Now, let's just pause there. So we've got these places we've probably never heard of. We've heard of Gog and Magog, but the prince of Rosh, Mashish and Tubal, who are they? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 10. There's something there called the Table of Nations. It's an incredible document that shows the dispersion of Noah's sons and the dispersions of people around the world. And when it's compared to linguistic patterns, it lines up. It's actually an amazing document that talks about how peoples traveled around the world. And it starts off by giving the lineages and then it talks and then you'll see you can take that map and it can break out from there. So it's called the Table of Nations, Genesis chapter 10. So here's uh, verse two, the sons of Japheth. Noah had three sons, Hem, Shem, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Media, Javon, Tubal, Meshach, and Teres. All of these, these men move and migrate north and end up being people groups or nations. So there are people groups and nations that come from these descendants. Now we go back to Ezekiel 38, 2 through 6, and it says, Set me, a son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, and then Mashish, which is one of Magog's brothers. So Magog was a son of Japheth, and he had a brother who was Mashish. Uh, so he is the prince of Rosh, Mashish, and Tubal, which is another one of the brothers. So you've got these brothers that are mentioned in this coalition from the north. And then it says, and prophesy against him, that would be Gog, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you, O Gog the prince of Rosh, Mashish, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaw, and lead you out. And with your army and horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them holding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. Now, Persia, as I said, is not quite as far north as what the areas of Turkey and, and above it are. And then Libya... And Ethiopia are in Africa. You know where that's at. So it's south of where they're at. So they join these northern. So Libya, Ethiopia, um, and Persia um, were with them. All of them with their shields and helmets. Gomer, which is, was another one of the brothers mentioned in the Table of Nations of, of Magog. And all of its troops. The house of Togomara, as far north as all its troops Many people are with you. So now it talks about the far north. So you've got these people migrating. Now, what we know is that they migrated from where Mount Ararat would be, and then they migrated north. So you, it's hard to pinpoint exactly. I got trouble. Can you, can you imagine that? I got trouble. <laughs> I'm so excited to have the new stage. I really am. Okay, hang on. I'm like kicking it off like, what's going on here? My OCD would not let me throw that on the stage somewhere, just so you know. 
I couldn't have you looking at that for the rest of the, of the Bible study, all right? So, ah, something's attacking me. Something's all over me here. All right. So uh, where were we? We were, um, so, so we've got this coalition that's a very isolated coalition in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They eventually go against Israel. They are destroyed on the mountains of Israel. Gog is destroyed with them, okay? Some people believe that Gog is the Antichrist. I don't see it. I've, I've learned not to just write things off really quick because later on I kind of come back and go, well, maybe there's something more to this. So I haven't completely written it off, but in just looking at it and trying to, to fit him into the role of the Antichrist, I can't really see it clearly. So in... I'm trying to figure out what is going on with my notes now. All right. So I want to read you just a couple more passages from Ezekiel. So that was Ezekiel 2. Uh, it was Ezekiel 38, 2 through 6. This is Ezekiel 38, 8. So it's just a couple of verses after that passage is done, kind of introducing Gog and Magog and what's going to happen to them. It says, after many days, you will be visited. This is now to Israel. He's speaking to Israel. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword. Actually, I still think he's talking to Gog, but he's talking about Israel being restored. So let me go from the beginning. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those who were brought back from the sword, gathered from many peoples of the mountains of Israel who had long been desolate. The land of Israel was long desolate. God said it was going to be desolate, then restored and were brought out of the nations. And now all of them dwell safely. So this is the regathering of Israel back into the nation. Now, they're there now, but they aren't dwelling safely. So before this Gog and Magog battle happens, we have to go from a step to where they're having, they have problems with Hezbollah, Lebanon. They got problems with Hamas and Gaza, right? They got problems coming out of Syria with, with um, Iran being involved in there, with Russia being involved in there. All of this is kind of lining up and looks like this coalition to some, to some degree. Now, some people will stop the migration in Turkey. Other people will take it all the way up into Russia. So that's why when you, you, you're studying different people to try to figure out where is Magog at? Sometimes in Bible atlases, it's in Turkey. And then if you're reading a prophecy book, they've usually got it up in Russia. And then all the Bible atlases don't agree. The reason is, is because they were migrating. So we, you, you got to figure out a snapshot in time. Where were they? They were migrating north. And we know that these uh, Meshish, um, Tubal, um, Meshish, and Magog all went up into the area of what we would call the, the uh, USSR back when it was together. So they did migrate up that far. But were they there in Ezekiel's day? No, they were further down. So where you're going to put them causes problems. And that's why nobody can ever figure it out. So if you ever wonder when you're looking at different maps or different prophecy experts, maps that they make of Gog and Magog. Why are they always different? Because they're trying to take a snapshot in time to be able to come up with something. And everybody seems to think they've got their own little interesting, you know, ad that they add into it. And when you start looking at all these different maps, which I did today, um, then you find, wow, there's, there's a lot of variety going on. So that just tells me we don't have good information. Because if we had good information about where these places were exactly, that they would all agree, or more of them would agree. There wouldn't be the vast differences that are out there. And I do think it's the fact that they were migrating and, and there's not a snapshot in time. They're just, you, when do you do it? 
For me, I think the best thing to do is probably go back and look at where they were during the days of Ezekiel. Try to figure out where these nations had stopped by then. And maybe that's not the right thing to do. Who knows? Maybe I think it's the best thing to do, but it's not. So in Ezekiel 39, we hear of the armies being killed. Now, notice that this is a lot different so far than Revelation, which is the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. So in Ezekiel 39, it says, Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and your troops and your peoples with all of you. I will give you to the birds of prey every sort of beast of the field to devour. You shall fall on an open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord. So in Revelation chapter 10, there's an army, there's a coalition, there's Gog and Magog, but they are devoured by fire from heaven. Fire from heaven devours them at the end of the millennium. So even though there are similarities, there are differences. And these are not the same battle. Think about Israel being restored. The passage that I read about them being brought back out of, into the land after it was desolate. And then think about they've been, in, they've been in peace and safety for a thousand years in the book of Revelation. So the Gog and Magog war of Revelation cannot be the same as the Gog and Magog war of Ezekiel. That's probably the simplest way to try to bring them together, but they're not the same because there's the same thing isn't happening in Israel. Same thing isn't happening with the people of Israel. Same thing isn't happening with the armies. There's all of these differences. So what do I think is happening in Revelation when it says that he goes out and deceives the whole nations, gathers them together for war, Gog and Magog? I think a couple of things could be happening. Number one, this just may be a reference to a coalition coming after Israel. And says Gog and Magog were a coalition that came after Israel. And this is another coalition that's coming after Israel. It's referred to as Gog and Magog. We do it in certain ways. We use Armageddon in a, in a way. You know, that was, that was their Armageddon. You know, uh, they, they really, you know, it, it, were you, Waterloo. We use Waterloo that way. That was their Waterloo. We don't mean that it was the same Waterloo. We mean that it was their Waterloo, that they, they had a, a Waterloo of their own that were similar, but it would be different. And so I think that Gog and Magog is referenced there as a type of the battle that it was, a coalition coming up against Israel, and they both do that. And so Gog and Magog is referenced there. Maybe it's a spirit. Remember that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah and Jesus said, Elijah is still going to come. And so there was a spirit there between the two. Now, that was a, a, a good spirit, but maybe there's an evil spirit. Because remember, behind nations, there are principalities which are demonic. In Daniel chapter 9 we, um, and chapter 8, we have the prince of, we have Gabriel fighting the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, which are demonic spirits over nations. So maybe the same spirit that was over the region of Gog and Magog is still over that region during the millennium. It's two different people groups. It's two different wars, but there's still a spirit that's involved in it, a connection through a spirit. We, we don't have to go, well, the, this is the Gog and Magog war to be able to do that. It just doesn't fit as we make our, our way through here. All right. So now we come to verse nine. Uh, they went up on the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So now during the millennium, Satan goes out, deceives the nation, Gog and Magog, 
and brings them down and they surround Jerusalem. This is just like the Gog and Magog war in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Remember, they are killed on the mountains of Jerusalem. And it says, they, they surrounded the camp of the beloved saints and hang on to your hat. Don't, don't blink, you'll miss this. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So where the Gog and Magog war had a certain amount of success to it. This just, God's just like, I'm done with you. God's like, this is the end. Of, this is the end. The millennium's done and I'm done with you. So now the armies are devoured. Now, we don't get any details that we want here. I'm a detail person. I like to build things on top of things. I want to know, well, did the, devour, did the fire devour everybody who was alive or just the army? And what happened to the people who are alive? Because the next thing we have, right after this passage we're going to finish tonight, the very next thing that we have is the judgment seat of Christ. The resurrection of the dead to everlasting death and the books are opened. That's the very next thing we have. So we aren't told. What happened to the people of Israel? Were, were they changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye? What happened to them? They, were, they weren't destroyed. They weren't devoured by fire. But they have to get their bodies like we have, which are like Christ's. The resurrected body, our, our mortal will put on immortality. It's corrupt will put on incorruption. So those are questions. I know I'm bringing up questions instead of answering them, but I don't know. I don't know what else you do. You, this happens. They are devoured. We don't get all of the details. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, there are five words in the Bible that refer to hell. And we have a, a Bible study on hell coming up in the next two weeks. I don't know if I'll be ready for it next Wednesday night, but it'll be next Wednesday night or the following Wednesday night that we're going to do this study. And we're going to look at, we're going to go over the passages in the Bible. I don't know if we're going to go over all of them, but we're going to at least take a sample of every kind of passage that there is about hell. Like for example, it says that the punishment is eternal, but it also says broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are that find it. So is the punishment eternal or are they destroyed? Is destruction a metaphor for the eternal fire or is the eternal fire a metaphor for destruction? So we're going to look at all of the passages. And this has been, I don't have time to talk about this, it's such a rabbit trail, but this has been one of my main pet peeves with, with teachings on hell is you just take a, a, a certain cherry-picked portions and talk about them and don't talk about the other passages. And what that does is when you run into somebody who, uh, who has a, a different view, maybe somebody from a cult like the Jehovah Witnesses, they knock on your door and go, do you know that hell isn't eternal? And you go, no, I just heard a Bible study on it. It's all eternal. And then they go, how come it says here, perish? How come it says here, it's death? The wages of sin are death. Doesn't say the wages of sin are eternal, um, uh, eternal awake torment. <laughs> that's not the phrase, but you don't, you don't understand what I mean. Anyway, that's a little preview of where we're going when we talk about hell. We want to be as biblical as we can. We want to take a look at it. We want to be honest about it. We want to see what it says. Um, people will say, well, that you can't be punished somebody eternity for a lifetime of sins. They live 70 years and they sin. Now you punish them in eternity. Well, when they die, their sin doesn't stop. Their soul continues with that hatred and anger against God. And maybe it's an eternity of, of sin that is being punished through eternity. So that, that, that's a possibility. Maybe we don't understand how holy God is. 
Maybe we just don't understand how our sin is against God. Maybe we just don't understand it. There's also the fact that if I walk up to the, in the street and punch you in the face, I wouldn't do it, okay? But if I did, then the cops would come and they'd probably put me in handcuffs and they'd look at my record and they would go, this guy's a pretty good guy. And he's not going around punching people in the face. And they'd probably let me go, maybe make me pay a fine, maybe some restitution for you, okay? But imagine if um, King Charles, that's who he is now, right? King Charles, we're here in Tucson. And I ran past his guards and I punched him in the face. Do you think they're going to be lenient on me? You think they're going to treat me the same way as if I punched you in the face? Or do you think they're going to slam me on the ground, put cuffs in me, drag me away? You may never see me again. Who knows what would happen? So if our offense is against a holy God, who is the most holy God there ever is, then what kind of punishment is sufficient? So these are the questions that I'm going to be covering. These are the things that I'm going over, already working on it, as you can tell. All right. And we will be covering that. But we need to close this one out. So um, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, which eventually death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. So all there will be is the lake of fire. And it says, and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, here is the only reference to anyone being tormented day and night forever and ever. There are references to the smoke of the torment going up forever and ever. There are references to eternal life and eternal condemnation. There are references. So we're not saying that it's not it. I'm just saying this is the only reference. The Antichrist, the false prophet and, and Satan. Now, Jesus said this in Matthew 25, 41 about the lake of fire. He said, then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So God didn't prepare hell for humans. He prepared it for the devil and his angels. And that's where they're thrown. But here we have two humans who are thrown into it. All right. So it's a complicated topic that we're not going to get into now, but we are going to get into soon and, and, and bouncing off of this. Now, three things in closing. There will be a time when Satan cannot do any more damage. The day is out there. Amen. When that evil that has been allowed and used by God to, to be a, to just oppose against his goodness will be gone. Number two, Satan is a great evil that runs the world even today. The Bible says that he is the God of this world and that he blinds the eyes of those who do not believe. So when you are talking to someone who doesn't believe, know there's something spiritual taking place. It's not just a matter of talking logically to them. There's a spiritual battle and their eyes have been blinded. Number three, evil is easily done away with. There, there's no huge battle. Satan is captured, thrown to the lake of fire, right? These guys are devoured in a moment from God. So at the very end, evil is done away with and taken away with. When we think of what Satan could do, we are not supposed to have a, a spirit of fear because God is so much more powerful than he is. Stand with me, would you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time that we're able to spend here today. We thank you for getting us through the light thing and the tape thing. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us. Lord, we want to love you and follow you and serve you. We want to know what the truth of your word is. And we do thank you that you give us direction here and that we see the Gog and Magog connection. 
And we pray that you would work in us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.